Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, August 15th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. And Caitlin Owens of Axios. Good morning. Our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. And a note about the schedule. Today is our Ask Us Anything episode. Next week, we'll have a deep dive on Medicare. And the very last week of August, we'll be on vacation. I hope you will, too. We'll be back with news on September 5th. So we asked for your questions and you delivered. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions or topics. We couldn't get to all of them, but we will do another one in a couple of months. So I want to start with a pretty broad question. It's from William Kay from Omaha, Nebraska. He wants to know, quote, why the healthcare debate in the U.S. seems to be focused on Medicare for all or strengthening the ACA, but no one is suggesting a universal multi-payer system with price controls like France or Germany. It seems there's a misconception that the rest of the industrial world has, quote, single payer. When a lot of places use multi-payer systems, what fuels that misconception in your opinion? Alice, why don't you start us off here? This is a great question, and it's something that's bothered me in the current debate. And the question ends with, where does this misconception come from? And I think it comes from the lawmakers and political candidates here in the U.S. who are promoting Medicare for all, because one of their big selling points is, this isn't this crazy, unheard of system. This is what everywhere else in the world has. And it's not. (laughs) It's pretty different. It's funny. I think it's just the opposite. I think he's coming from the opponents of Medicare for all, who says it's just like the socialist systems that every country in Europe has when every country in Europe doesn't have one of these. But when Bernie Sanders says, you know, we want we want to be like the rest of the world, we're the only outlier. And it's true that we are the only outlier in some ways. But it's also true that what he's proposing is not like the countries he frequently references. I mean, he just uh, took this delegation of people to Canada to buy cheaper insulin. And he points to Canada's system often. But Canada's system is very, very different and has a much larger role for private insurance than the system he is proposing, which is completely centralized in the federal government. And so there's a lot of good information I was looking at about this question. And I think the biggest differences between Bernie's Medicare for All bill and what's happening in other countries is both the involvement, the level of involvement of private insurance. Um, Some countries allow folks to buy completely private insurance or to buy supplemental plans that cover a great deal of things or help bring down out-of-pocket costs for things that aren't covered or aren't covered all the way. Also, there's a big difference in the amount of federal control over the system versus like regional or state control. And so the U.S. Medicare for All plan that's being discussed is very centralized with federal control making decisions about how much providers are paid and what benefits are covered and all those kinds of things. When, I think I think that's a really important mm-hmm. point. People don't appreciate how much 
um, health systems in other countries are based on something other than the federal government in Canada. It's the provinces. It's very different from province to province. I was in Switzerland where it's, very, where it's different from canton to canton in terms of who does the negotiating for prices. I mean, there are a lot of countries that do it and then and do not have a quote-unquote federal government overseeing but have other levels of government that oversee it. Right, right. And so I think what it's important to keep in mind is the folks pushing the Medicare for All bill, they're describing it as sort of like an opening bid. And they know and folks supporting it know that what could eventually become law is not going to look exactly like what's proposed. And so, you know, you have these groups supporting it, like the nurses union, who say, why would we negotiate against ourselves and make our first offer an argument about some sort of hybrid public-private, people still have to pay copays kind of system? Why not push for everything so that when we eventually have to come together and fight it out in Congress and have, you know, the hospital industry and the pharmaceutical industry fight it out, that what we end up with is still something quite generous. And I think, too, I mean, it's a marketing ploy. Try to sum up Canada or Germany in three words. Um, I don't know if (laughs) universal multi-payer system for all really sounds the best compared to Medicare for all. Yeah, Yeah. and it's something that people can understand and they can grasp, and it is leading to misconceptions. But on the flip side, it is maybe engaging more people than it would have, Um, even back um, covering the ACA, um, I don't know, what did we call it, health reform? I mean, there wasn't really any yeah, great... what did we like, call it? Well, <laughs> its official name was the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. That right. Was because it, so much of it was about the, the, the Patient's Bill of Rights stuff that Congress argued about in the early 2000s and didn't get done. It was kind of a combination of things. And we sort of lost the Patient Protection Act. So, then, I mean, it's nothing, in the law. We just lost it yeah, in the name. And then nothing really, like, caught on until it was Obamacare. And that mm-hmm. was done by opponents, really, and then claimed by Democrats. But um, I think it's I think Medicare for All is just the easiest marketing slogan. Just to piggyback off of that, is that I think politicians and I think Americans love their easy health care slogans. You know, Medicare for All, repeal and replace. Like, And they're very simple. But then as we've seen in reality, it doesn't it just doesn't work out that way. But um, two substantive points I want to make is, first of all, it is true that the U.S. is the only developed country that does not have universal health care. And I think that there's a lot of confusion that between what between universal health care and a single payer system. A lot of the times those two things are conflated when in reality, a lot of countries have obtained universal health care where everyone has coverage and it doesn't bankrupt them um, without using a single-payer system. And there are dozens of ways to do that. Right, mm-hmm. right. Now, this, the, the other point I want to make is that if we did have Bernie Sanders-style Medicare for All, we would leapfrog everyone else and become the country with the most generous form of health coverage, mm-hmm. um, where there would be no deductibles, no premiums, no co-pays. Everything would be free, and the government would both handle it and pay for it all. Um, and we'd figure out how to pay for that, presumably through some kind of tax system. Um, so it's kind of like the gap is wide on either way. Right now, the gap is wide between us and other countries, and it would still be wide between us and other countries, <laughs> just revert in reverse. Right. I think it's interesting, just, just to wrap up, I think it's interesting that both sides wildly mischaracterize other countries' health systems. So maybe, maybe we all need to go. <laughs> On a trip around the world to see I'm for in. ourselves. <laughs> I volunteer. Yeah. Because um, you hear Republicans country? telling these really inaccurate horror stories about countries with more socialized medicine and, and universal coverage, you know, about people, you know, d- 
dying, waiting for care. And, you know, I'm sure that happens. It definitely happens here. Um, But um, you have misleading negative stories, but then you have Bernie Sanders also mischaracterizing other countries' health systems. All right. Well, next, uh, we have a question about drug prices, which is top of mind for a lot of people these days. Uh, Regine Belliard of Baltimore is a clinical pharmacist who says she receives, quote, lots of referrals for patients who can't afford their medications, specifically Medicare patients. Can you please explain the policies that prevent the majority of Medicare patients from using third-party and manufacturer coupons for medications? Anna, you're our drug price person. Why can't you? First, explain what these drug coupons are. Well, they are um, essentially for people to whatever out-of-pocket costs they might have, the drug companies are trying to cover those. So they might give them out at your doctor's office or at the pharmacy or something, and or you can go online a lot of times, um, and they'll they'll cover a certain amount of your copay or whatever you have to pay, and then your insurance will cover the rest of the drug, um, and so that's where this problem lies, um, and it's a, it is the you know specific to Medicare, um, the federal government does not allow. For the, it violates what's called the anti-kickback statute. So if you are purchasing something using federal money, um, the, no one can pay you or offer you anything of value to entice you to purchase that thing. Which is exactly um, what the coupons are for, is right. to entice it's, you to purchase right. the brand name and, that, and that's the problem with them is they're enticing you to, when there could be generics. And that's often the case. It's not always the case. Um but often it's the case that there is a generic option that would be a cheaper copay, but using this coupon, you get the brand name, your insurance has to cover the brand name price, which is a lot higher, and you end up foregoing probably cheaper options that might be out there. Obviously, it's really tough if you if there is no generic and you're in Medicare. Um, your options are a lot more limited. There are kind of these pharmaceutical assistance programs, but they're, um, you know, sometimes the companies will will put them on, um, but you have to have no insurance um, pretty much or have paid a large amount out to Medicare already in Part D. They can be hard Um, to qualify for. They can be tough to qualify for. And a lot of the charities, there are patient assistance charities, but those are also often backed by the drug makers um, who are giving money to help you, again, afford the drug. And it's just in a different way, but it works very similar to the coupons. And so the DOJ is actually looking into this. They've been doing it for a few years. Pfizer got in trouble because they had given some money to a patient assistance charity right around the time they raised the price of this this heart drug. Um, and so they raised the price. They got more people to be able to take it. And obviously, that's not exactly a good look. And it doesn't help the federal government keep costs down. Yeah, because eventually, I mean, the thing about the drug coupons is that eventually somebody pays for the drug, <laughs> even if it's not the patient. Right. So it's not like... It's kind of like the whole drug price debate. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> like, are we raise, are we lowering drug prices? Or are we lowering cost to patients and someone else is paying for it somewhere else? So right. before we get into broader discussions, this, I, there's a related question. I'm actually going to skip ahead and ask this one now because it goes to the same thing. Um, this question's from Ariel Levin Becker from Cheshire, Connecticut. She says she remembers when drug companies would traditionally provide financial assistance to patients who couldn't afford life-saving drugs, exactly what you were talking about. And here I quote, she says, a cynic might say this helped avoid a crisis, people dying from skipping treatment that would create pressure for broader solutions to high prices, she writes. So she continues, I'm curious about what's different in the insulin situation. Mm-hmm. Are drug 
companies not providing enough assistance to essentially shuffle the issue under the rug? Have drug companies changed their strategies? Is it different when it's a drug people take for life to treat a chronic disease rather than a short-term treatment? Is it more of an issue because of changes in insurance that make patients more exposed to drug costs? Or are we just hearing more about patients' struggles now because of social media and or more savvy consumer advocacy? <laughs> a lot of questions. Yeah, but right. generally why, I think the, the bigger question is, if we have these sort of assistance programs for mostly cancer drugs or sometimes mm-hmm. rheumatoid arthritis, drugs that are out there for which there are treatments that's really expensive, why is there not similar types of assistance for insulin? Um, well, I think you uh, you made a good point earlier when you said that these assistance programs can be tough to qualify for. And one of the things I noticed, um, I was looking through different assistance programs for certain drugs. So Lantus and Humalog are kind of your two of your biggest insulins. And those uh, the assistance for those is offered through the pharmaceutical company. It's definitely the toughest to qualify for because they're giving you the medicine for free. They're not um, they're not discounting a copay or something. It's not a coupon. And so, um, you know, when you look at your cancer drugs, um, often those are going through the patient assistance charities. And so it's a different, it's sort of, there's a different level of, of help there. And so I think the questioner kind of hit the, the nail on the head and that there, there, are, there are differences in what's going on. I think what's happening is there are still, you know, I still read a lot of stories about patients not being able to afford their cancer drugs as well. Um, so insulin's not the only, only thing. I think what we're seeing with insulin is it's a drug that's been around for 100 years. Um, there's not some huge innovation here. Cancer drugs are constantly evolving, are constantly hopefully improving life spans and maybe potentially even curing cancer. And with insulin, that's not the case, but the price still keeps going up. And people are paying thousands of dollars a month versus maybe a couple hundred um, previously. So we're seeing a lot more scrutiny of this, even from lawmakers, because I mean, the patent for insulin, you know, it's a well-known story. I think the guy who was on the patent gave, gave it away for a dollar yeah. <laughs> um, because he thought this is such a vital medicine and people should be able to have access to and it. he was Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> My question for, for the rest of the panel is, is, is insulin going to be sort of what breaks the back of, you know, Congress? Congress has been wrestling with drug prices since I've been covering Congress. I mean, you know, for since the 1980s, yeah. um, with with no, you know, there have been a few things. I mean, they passed the generic bill. They there was a biogeneric uh, uh, part to the Affordable Care Act, but basically the drug companies have have managed to fend off most big time uh, price issues. Um, but this the insulin thing seems to be really catching on with the public. I mean, it's just I think like Medicare for all, right. it's something that's really easy to understand if you're type 1 diabetic and you don't get insulin, you're going to die. Yeah, let's define break the back, right? (laughs) I mean, could something incremental potentially get done so lawmakers can say, yeah, we did something? Yes. Could it be specifically like tailored to insulin? Yes. Is that our big picture drug problem? No. As we're saying, like insulin is a particularly egregious example just because it's an old drug and, um, you know, it's a competition issue where three drug companies basically compete within themselves and each other and all kind of raise the prices together. Like this is a very fixable, non-sympathetic thing. But no, I don't, I just, no. The the answer to the question is no. Like we need to see a lot more happen before Congress gets serious. And I think one of the issues with insulin as the maybe poster child for breaking Congress's back on this is part of the problem is the FDA. 
um, the Food and Drug Administration has not did not have a good pathway for generic insulin to get approved. Um, and, and some of this is on the drug companies who didn't see really a market for making it and on the brand companies who have all these patents around it. But the FDA also didn't really have a clear pathway for a generic approval, and that is supposed to be coming um, next year. And so, you know, if you're Congress and you think, you know, well, this is really hard. Let's see what the FDA does. I mean, you have you kind of have that out. Is Lily's half price insulin not a generic? It's just a it's, it's just a discount it's an, insulin. I guess it's a authorized generic, if I mm-hmm. remember correctly, um, which means that they are cheaper. You know, if maybe you don't have insurance or something like that. Um, if you have insurance and you are your your insurance company is negotiating rebates or your PBM is negotiating rebates, you're probably paying about the same amount if it's a brand or an authorized generic. Um, So it actually doesn't make a huge difference for the vast majority of people. And I think you guys just wrote about this, Julie. Yeah, it was Um, a really good story. You know, I I think the eye-popping number in there was that there's about 1,200 of these authorized generics. Where, yeah, the dirty little secret is maybe they're cheaper, but then there's not all of these mandated rebates and whatever. So what the drug company ends up getting from it is, yeah, about the same as they would have otherwise. Sometimes they can even profit off of authorized generics. And also you can't always get it. And also you can't always get it. And, you know, I think that when we're talking about coupons and patient assistance and all that, an important point to make is like drug companies are not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. Mm -hmm. There is a profit motive here. It's not that they feel bad for patients. It's -hmm. it's that if they keep helping patients afford these drugs and then expecting their insurance to cover it, they can keep charging very high prices for it and recoup the money through insurance. And of course, that's not free for the rest of us. We all pay for that via our premiums. Um, So there is a very clear profit strategy that goes on behind the scenes here. But patients think, yo, my drug company, I'm getting it. I can afford my drug now. This is great. Um, Okay, yes, but also it's not great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even even when they donate, even when they donate drugs for free for people, there's still a profit motive because the cost for them to donate is very low, but then the tax benefit they can claim is the market rate, which is very high. And so, yes, there's always an interest. Speaking of capitalism in healthcare, uh, (laughs) our next question is from Tiffany Hu of Irvine, California. She writes, quote, I know you all talked about the update on the Cadillac tax, but I was wondering what are the reasons for why there is bipartisan support to repeal it? As you noted, most health economists support the Cadillac tax as a key ACA provision to curb rising health care costs. Is it just because it's a very politically unpopular subject, or are the health economists wrong in viewing health care like a typical functioning market when it's not? Uh, I'm going to start here because I have a Cadillac story, <laughs> a Cadillac tech story out this week, in which I basically theorized that this is the most likely piece of health legislation that's going to pass this year. It passed the House, obviously, when we talked about it overwhelmingly. It now has more than 60 co-sponsors in the Senate, which is 60 being the magic number. Um, uh, and I, I, my theory is that the reason it's happening now and when it didn't happen before is that when the Cadillac tax, which is this 40 percent excise tax on very generous health plans, um, and it was never – employers are responsible for the tax, but no employer was ever expected to pay for it. Rather, they were going to just lower benefits to uh, to get under the threshold um, when they – when this was put into the Affordable Care Act, it was seen as a sort of a break on ever-expanding health care spending and sort of an aggregate, let's all use less health care, which was the big issue in 2010 when we were working on the Affordable Care Act. The big issue in 2019, as we've just been discussing with drug prices, is individuals' costs. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that the Cadillacs would, Cadillac tax would do if it ever took effect is that it would 
it would make individuals have more out-of-pocket costs because it would make their plans less generous. So by definition, it would make worse the problem that Congress is currently grappling with, which is my theory about why it's now just going to go away, despite right. the, the the fact that the economists still like it. Well, let's talk about like what it, we're really doing here. You know, obviously, there's the I think it's what $200 billion is what it costs it's a lot of money, the federal government. But I think that it's a pretty uniquely American thing to say, I want my health care. I want as much as it, of it as I can have. And I want it now. And don't like you better pay for it. I, right. Know? And I want someone else. And to I pay want for someone it. else to pay for it. So I think that's part of this is that no one wants to feel like their health care is being rationed. But then the backside of that is what politicians <laughs> really don't want to do is say, you know what? This is not a utilization issue. This is a pricing. Prices just keep going up issue. We're not good. We don't really want to make anyone mad. We just talked about pharma. No one wants to make pharma mad. But we really don't want to make hospitals and doctors mad. So instead of really like curbing these costs, we're just going to let people keep having whatever they want and providers charge whatever they want to be paid for for it. And I, and I think it's just not just the health industry that was against this. You have unions right. and businesses on the same side. Um, so to Julie's point, like, that's, why that's it's definitely why it's bipartisan right. Right. and yes, that's right. very likely to pass. Yes. Well, and but unions hated it when it got put in. I mean, right. it's, it's, yeah, it has, I mean unions yeah. pointed out correctly that over for many, many years, they have bargained for better health insurance in lieu of better wages because, as Alice was saying earlier about something else, there's a tax benefit for employers to provide more generous health benefits. There's a bigger tax benefit for the employer to provide more in fringe benefits than in wages. So therefore, it's been easier to do. But the result has been it's, you know, people's employer-provided health insurance is wildly uneven. Some people have really good coverage and some people have really bad coverage and most everybody else is somewhere in the middle. Um, And this was sort of an effort to push that down. But as you as you point out, you know, there are always winners and losers in healthcare. I mean, it's wild that we're in a space where Democrats took back the House on a big health care message. And the biggest thing that's likely to happen is that Democrats are going to help get rid of a part of the Affordable Care Act. Right. One of the big parts that's paying for the Affordable right. Care Act. Yes. But it makes sense when you think they don't want to piss off unions, they don't want to piss off big business, and they don't want to trigger businesses making people's health plans, you know, worse and less generous. I think it's more that than anything (laughs) else. I think it's the actual fear of what would happen. Also, there's been a ton of good data, you know, since this was originally passed that there isn't really excessive healthcare utilization in the U.S. compared to other countries. There just isn't. People aren't, like, frivolously... It's the prices, not the the use. Exactly. Exactly. And so that sort of underpinning logic is kind of crumbled. (laughs) Well, it's kind of funny because, you know, maybe this... I feel like this is a band solution, right, where you prevent a lot of costs from being offloaded onto um, employees now, but it does nothing to stop these costs that are just going to keep growing in the mm-hmm. future. And I mean, employers, even if employers keep paying for all of this, that's lo- that's more lost wages, um, which, of course, people don't feel because it's hard to imagine what you're not getting paid. But, you know, there's, there's just kind of no end in sight for this. And the Cadillac tax was kind of this backdoor way of trying to address these ever-increasing prices. Um, and I think the Democratic Party has obviously evolved now into wanting to be more aggressive um, and combat them through more government price controls or just having a government plan. If nothing else happens besides the Cadillac tax gets repealed, we're all going to end up paying for it. <laughs> well, that's a perfect lead into the next question. Uh, it comes from Libby Aldridge in Baltimore. She said that watching the last debate gave her, quote, a lot of questions 
questions about these public option plans and what they are proposing, if anything, for individuals in states that didn't expand Medicaid who cannot afford to purchase a public option. Alice, I think what she's talking about here are the people in what we call the Medicaid gap. Remind us who those are. Those are people who make slightly too much to qualify for traditional Medicaid, which has a really low threshold. You have to be very, very, very poor. And in some states, you have to be a member of a certain, you know, Correct. you have to be a parent or a child exactly. or with someone with a disability. So someone who can't enroll in traditional Medicaid, they're in a state that didn't choose to expand, but they can't afford even the cheapest, most subsidized Obamacare option. And so they there's millions of those people out there. And um, yeah, and and so some of the um, proposals that are currently being debated address that population. What I think is interesting is it triggers a fairness question and it triggers, well, so, okay, uh, Biden's plan, for example, would auto-enroll those people who are in states that didn't expand Medicaid, they would get auto-enrolled for free and at no cost to the state either in this public option that would be newly created. So the state is saving money and basically is getting rewarded for not expanding Medicaid earlier. Is that fair to the states that did expand earlier? Mm, We'll see. I I think you run into a similar problem to a lesser extent with some of uh, the bills in Congress This isn't really part of the 2020 debate, but there are bills in Congress to incentivize the state, the remaining 14, I think, states. 19, I think it is. Or no, I guess it is less. I think it's less. Yeah. Um, That didn't expand uh, to expand by giving them the same um, like 100 percent federal match that they would have gotten at the beginning. Again, is this rewarding the folks that uh, went for years that that one seems a little bit less unfair because the states Mm -hmm. that came in at the beginning got 100 percent match and then it's it's now phasing down to 90. Sure, but they've been now saving all this money by not expanding at all in the interim. Uh, You can can argue it either way. You can argue it either way. But I think that the response to isn't this unfair is, well, doing nothing for this population in the gap would be unfair to those people, theoretically. I'm very curious how Republican governors would respond to, here's free money to expand Medicaid. Well, that's what they had at the beginning. Right. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) And because it was Obamacare. Although their argument was that it would phase out and be too expensive eventually. It was. That's true. So one presumes that this is free money indefinitely, or at least the way it's it's written, because you would presume that the, 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 the dozen plus states that are still holding out really don't I mean if it's calling their bluff it's saying if right. you don't have to pay okay you we get it that you don't want to right. pay 10% which we should remind people that states pay mostly about half of Medicaid costs. So the idea of only paying 10% to cover a big chunk of your uninsured population was an amazing offer from the federal government. Um, And I think that's why so many Republican governors eventually did come in. Um, But, you know, we still have Texas out there and Florida. I mean, two really big states that haven't expanded Medicaid. Yeah, no. And I I just went, it seems like this proposal being out there hasn't really had an influence on the states that are actively debating expansion now. And I'm wondering if it will, because they might say, "Okay, maybe if we just uh, hold off for a year, we can have this for free instead. Well, then, you know, Congress actually has to pass the (laughs) the law. So holding off for a year probably won't get them anywhere. We can all just hold off for Medicare for all, you know. Oh, my gosh. Medicaid, go away. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, while we were talking about people with lower incomes, Nancy Halloran of Oakland, California, wants us to talk about, quote, the debate around using Medicaid dollars for housing services. Homelessness is really bad for health. 
health and leads to avoidable acute health problems. Anna, this falls into the heading of something we call social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is there are there are actually some programs that let Medicaid pay for this, right? Well, there are. Um, you know, California has has started something, um, a pilot program um, that I believe was in 2017 to allow for this and. Um, they don't pay. They don't like pay your rent. You know, they um, they can help with security deposits and they can kind of help hook you up with people who can make sure that you're getting housing. Um, and then, you know, I think there was a lot of hubbub in like November. Um, HHS Secretary Alex Azar actually talked about this and said, um, you know, what if we could use um, federal dollars that are going towards health care to also work on these non-health care things that actually improve health outcomes. Um, so getting people in housing you know, improves their health outcomes. They're, they're more stable. Um, you know, they are potentially have, you know, are eating better, just all kinds of things. They aren't going to the ER nearly as much. And he said to watch out to see what CMMI is doing, which is the innovation center um, created under the Affordable Care Act. Um, what he talked about was giving actually um, Medicare Advantage the flexibility to try this um, instead of Medicaid. Um, and so, you know, that was a little bit um, maybe less of, of housing focus and more on some of the things that seniors might need um, that aren't exactly health care related. Um, but and things it, like transportation, transportation being able to get for to, sure. the, yeah, to, to medical one care. Of them. And nutrition, I think, mm-hmm. is the other yeah. sort of mm-hmm. big one. Um, uh, yeah, actually, it was. I remember it was the Obama administration that started off that uh, that allowed these experiments, and I think they were in Medicaid um, for housing and nutrition and transportation and stuff um, uh, under the auspices of the Innovation Center. Right. Um, that was actually I wrote just sort of a little story about that. It was like one of the most shared stories I ever wrote. People were just absolutely. It's like, oh wow, look at what the administration's doing. So it's yeah. been slow, but I think. Well, and I also think it's um, you know. I sort of follow it um, more as a hobby because, like I mentioned, my sister is involved in homeless advocacy. And I think it's a revelation to people that, you know, oh, all this stuff actually works together. Mm -hmm. Um, If you silo it, you're really not doing anyone, you know, any favors. Mm -hmm. Um, I found a RAND study from uh, June of last year that looked at L.A. County when they started doing some of this. So the county identified high users of, of health services and tried to get them to move into housing. And some of the just some of the stats, they followed, Rand followed 900 who, um, who were part of this program, 900 people, and they found 70% fewer ER visits um, after the move and that the county had saved $6.5 million in the second year of the study overall. So I think that's pretty good proof that, um, that doing all of this as, as what, what um, Alex Azar referred to it and what many others have is whole person care. There, there is some good news in healthcare. All right. Our last question comes from Molly Gelbert, who's here in Washington, D.C. She wants to know, uh, with so many stories about surprise bills that, quote, involve narrow networks and or inaccurate provider directories, the focus of the public discourse has been around provider compensation. What can be done at the federal level to regulate health plan business decisions and why aren't lawmakers holding them accountable? Um, actually, inaccurate provider directories are part of the, the surprise bill bills working their way through Congress. Yes. Caitlin, you're nodding. These bills in Congress, what they do first and foremost is they just say that if you're a provider, you cannot charge a patient more than their in-network rate in a, in a situation where they would get a surprise medical bill. Um, and so part of that is when they're out of network, having transparency around that. Now, if a patient comes into the ER, there's a, they're in no position to 
figure out whether that ER doctor in that hospital is in is in their insurance network. But, you know, if someone is going in for a knee surgery that is a scheduled visit, some of these bills and what they do is they say, okay, if you want to see an out-of-network specialist, it's on the insurer and the provider to inform you and get your consent that you were going to see this out-of-network specialist. And then they can bill you for that care, but you are choosing to go outside of your insurance network. Mm -hmm. So I think that's mostly where it comes from. Yeah, but I think there are also – there are provisions, at least in the Senate bill, that say if the provider is listed as in-network in the provider directory and it turns out they're not and you go to them in good faith, you're not – you're not responsible right. for that out-of-network right. bill. Correct. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So. Yeah, and so I think, but then the reason why it gets, fo- the focus is on provider compensation is just like, that's where it gets dicey. I don't think it's possible for anyone to say, we want to continue to have surprise bills, right? Like, that's a politically untenable position. So then what happens is that you have this clash between insurers and providers who then have to figure out who is paying for those bills and how much. Mm-hmm. Um, providers, out-of-network billing is lucrative for them. Um, insurers obviously do not want to pay those out-of-network rates when they did not agree to them in contract negotiations. Uh, then the question becomes, how do you how do you figure this out? And you know, these are two completely opposing interests. Um, and right now, uh, the way that Congress has landed, it's kind of on the side of the insurers, where they sent the leading proposal sets a kind of benchmark out-of-network rate. We'll see if that stays. When we'll they see come if back. that stays <laughs> because we're seeing providers launch a war against mm-hmm. that. Um, they do not like that. They do not want to have their out-of-network billing potential limited. But, you know, I think it's important to realize that, first of all, they could have stopped surprise billing people anytime they wanted to. They did not have to send balance bill patients for thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a it's a profit loss. But more importantly, what happens is these out-of-network billing, the, the ability to go out of network and, pay, and charge whatever you want out of network has also had an inflationary effect on in-network rates. Providers can look at insurers and say, you know, I'm going to charge your patient nine times this amount if you don't pay me what I want to for this in-network rate. So you can look at these specialties that tend to surprise bill patients and just what they get paid in their contracts, their negotiated contracts is way higher than either the Medicare rate or also just what other specialties that don't have the ability to surprise bill get paid. So there's a lot of money here at stake. Yes, and I think, and and in fairness to to, to the questioner, um, I think we the the those of us who are covering this have been kind of guilty of talking about almost exclusively about the, right. the provider rate because that's where the fight is. So right. we haven't that's, been right. talking about these other things. So. Although it is fair, you know, the fight is what could derail the entire thing. So <laughs> indeed, <laughs> which is why we're talking about what the fight is. But I think we should remember to talk about the other stuff too. Right, right. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for questions. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Anna, why don't you start us off this week? Um, sure. So this is from my colleagues um, in Canada um, at Bloomberg. It's Trump's Canada drug import plan can't happen without big pharma. And I know um, you know this podcast and many people have talked about how the Canadian government in no way was going to allow this to happen because it would cause shortages. I think this was a good look at the... I believe I used the phrase freak out last week. <laughs> freak out is the new crazy pants. Yes. Um, so the... Um, this is a, a look at the the pharma side. Essentially, you're you have a you have a block even before you think about the Canadian government. It's that there are these agreements. You know, drug makers aren't just throwing 
drugs in the air and and letting anyone you know <laughs> get them or to to buy them. They're making agreements with distributors and with pharmacies, and they those agreements say you know these can't be just diverted to another country. Um, they're for Canadians and. So if you're violating those agreements, you very likely could um, end up, you know, having the drug makers just pull their supply and not provide you any drugs, and then you can't sell and you can't have your business. So um, this whole thing kind of falls apart on that. So so getting drugs from Canada, not the be-all, end-all solution it's to drug not prices. It, no. <laughs> <laughs> Alice? My piece is following up. We've been talking a lot about the sort of fraught um, discussion around guns and mental health and the discourse sort of giving mental health an outsized role in the kinds of um, shootings and violence we're seeing lately, which is not accurate. And many people who commit acts of violence are not mentally ill, and the vast majority of mentally ill people do not commit violence. So just want to say that <laughs> up top. But this uh, very good piece by Kira Lerner in The Appeal um, is about uh, the recent mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio, prompting the governor to reevaluate um, their uh, interaction between the criminal justice system and the mental health system. Um, there has been some speculation that the mass shooter in that situation had an untreated mental illness and these state psychiatric hospitals are just uh, routinely just at capacity have absolutely no room to take anyone and a lot of that is because a ton of folks who are um, detained and awaiting trial are court ordered to be sent there a lot of times the acts they've committed are nonviolent, and those people could be being treated in an outpatient scenario and possibly getting uh, better help um, and not taking up room in these hospitals that you know folks in crisis would be able to take so i i think you know it's sad that it took this mass shooting there for them to reevaluate what's going on but it seems like there's at least some productive discussions going on caitlin so just following back up on the surprise billing issue, I chose a uh, JAMA internal medicine study that looked at how – it looked at the data from um, one database that looked at one commercial insurer's data from over between 2010 and 2016. And it just found this – what I thought to be kind of a staggering increase in the amount of surprise medical bills that people receive. This was – Bills from an in-network hospital, so a patient could reasonably expect that all of their care there would be in-network. Um, it found that for emergency department visits, in 2010, 32% of those ED bills were surprise medical bills out of network. That increased to 42.8% in 2016. And the amount of those bills also increased from $220 to $628. Similarly, inpatient admissions, those also, the amount of surprise medical bills from there increased from 26.3% of admissions to 42% of admissions resulting in a surprise medical out-of-network bill. And at the, an in-network hospital. At an in-network hospital. Right. And the amount here, this was crazy, this is increased from the the value of those bills were $804 in 2010 on average. That increased to $2,040 on average in 2016. And just let's keep in mind here that the average American does not have $2,000 sitting around to spend. Um, and these are – but they that's they still need health care, you know. Um, so then another – just one other fact I, I wrote on this study and I found incredibly eye-opening was that uh, emergency care ambulance visits – 
85% of those resulted in an out-of-network oh bill for this in this insurance. Because you can always choose to find an in-network provider when you need an ambulance. <laughs> right. 911, can you make sure my ambulance is covered right. by my insurance? My dad is having a heart attack. Yeah. Like Yes. So, so. yes, th- this, this debate will definitely go on that this study will probably uh, contribute to it. Mm-hmm. Um, my story is for the second week in a row from our podcast mate, Paige Winfield Cunningham at The Washington Post. And a note, Paige will be back with us next week. The story is called Illness is One of Many New Factors to Count Against Immigrants Seeking U.S. Mm-hmm. Residency. And while we're not technically doing breaking news this week, I didn't want us to completely ignore the new public charge rule from the Trump administration that will make it harder for immigrants to get permanent status or citizenship because they might have obtained publicly financed or even publicly subsidized health care. Hospitals and clinics are up in arms about this in no small part because they have their own funding at risk. But there are public health concerns as well, particularly the idea of people having to decide between treating their own or their children's ailments and getting to stay in the U.S. permanently. This is an issue we will definitely come back to. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rodner. At Anna Edney. At Alice Olstein. At Caitlin and Owens. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.